Welcome back, Intimates. I'm excited to find you experts to talk about love, connection, non-monogamy, polyamory, relationship anarchy, group sex, kink, commitment, and lots of other intimacy and relationship topics. Let's live our best lives together by unlearning stigma and getting clear on what we really want. Don't know what to ask for? I have loads of ideas for you. Of course, none of this would be possible without the support of my amazing Patreon supporters or my current hosts, the Musqueam First Nation on whose unceded lands this podcast was made and this human was born. If you want to support more intimate interactions, you can say thank you by supporting us on Patreon for as little as $1 a month. Patreon supporters also get every episode of the podcast ad-free with short intros and outros. I know funds are not an option for some of you lovely humans, but don't fret, there are other ways you can help out. You can help make more intimate interactions by just telling someone you listen to this podcast. Or if you're feeling especially generous, you can share a link to an episode you like and discuss it with a friend or partner, or even leave us a review on iTunes or your favorite podcasting site. Help other humans interested in more intimacy and better relationships find us. If you have your own podcast, shout us out. Need a podcast guest? Email offers to podcast at victorsalmon.com. I love talking about relationships and intimacy, and I love cross-promotion and working with other podcasters. Okay, let's hear about today's episode. Hey everyone, I've decided to release this podcast episode by donation because, as my friends have assured me on Facebook, this is important and relevant news. Um, I think content creators are worth paying in all cases, and I also recognize that some of you just can't. Normally I do a Patreon early access release, so it's a few months for folks to get all my stuff that I make for free, but then folks who don't want to wait, who have the, the means, are able to um, pay me, which is awesome. It helps compensate me for the many hours that I do of research, interviewing, editing, publishing, social media promotion, and all kinds of other such time and labor I put into my podcast. If you're able to do so and you want to support me on Patreon anyways, feel free to go to patreon.com slash Victor Salmon and throw me a few bucks. As little as $1 my way gets you into my patron list and as much as five fifty gets you all the things. If you don't have the funds right now because it's a pandemic, trust me, I get it. It would be super helpful if you could just leave me a review on iTunes. Okay, so I know it's a bit scary, but we should have a conversation about COVID-19, long-term effects, and talk a little bit about prevention, which is what today is all about. I'll post resources in the description, but first, how much COVID-19 is out there already, right? Like, where are we? Currently, on September 22nd in Vancouver, we're in the middle of our uptick for that sort of second wave, and... The uptick is very steep. It's steeper than we were than I was expecting for sure. And it's starting to feel like folks may not have things as as under control, certainly as we did for the first portion. Um, what I want to say though is all the data that I talk about will be linked in the show notes. So if you go and take a look in the show notes, you'll see links to news stories. There's a CBC story that shows um, where we are from, I believe, yesterday. And then I also have articles linked for essentially every month. So it's interesting to look at how this pandemic has evolved over time. And I think looking at news stories a month apart is actually a really good way to do that quickly and sort of skim. Um, so I can actually read you some quotes from that. Um, yeah, why don't I start now? So quote, it's now been more than a month since she started experiencing symptoms and she's still battling a lingering headache, cough and fatigue, end quote. That one's from CNBC in May. Quote, she's had a fever, she said, for more than 100 days, end quote. That one's NBC News from June. And again, all these links will be in the show notes. Quote, 
COVID-19 can result in prolonged illness, even among persons with milder outpatient illnesses, including young adults, end quote. The authors, um, the report's authors wrote, end other quote. Um, that was from July. That's NBC News. There's also another story here. Um, quote, when most people think of COVID-19, they imagine two possibilities, a flu-like illness that clears on its own or a life-threatening condition that requires ventilation and a hospital stay, end quote. That's from August, and it's starting to talk about long-haul COVID-19 survivors, which is something we're going to get into today as I interview one. Um, quote, participants were recruited about two and a half months after their illnesses when their symptoms were expected to have subsided. More than half reported lasting fatigue. Researchers looked for certain biological signs that might explain the results, such as white blood cell counts and inflammatory blood markers. They found none. End quote. That one's from NBC News from September. But the best snapshot, because I don't want to cause alarm here, um, that I've been able to find about the disease, it seems to neither underrepresent nor overrepresent are these two, or actually both of these studies are found in one CBC article from yesterday. Quote, a global online survey of almost 4 million people suggests that about 5% of people who contracted COVID-19 reported persistent symptoms one month later, end quote. Um, and then the second piece says, quote, according to a study recently accepted for publication in the European Respiratory Journal, 75% of people admitted to hospital in Vancouver, BC for COVID-19 continue to experience symptoms more than three months after the onset of symptoms. End quote. So that one's from CBC. So I'm not really sure exactly what all of that means, but my understanding as a layperson with a science degree reading through some of this material online is that there are more than those two outcomes. One, it's so serious, I go to hospital and die. Or two, I get this infection and then get better, whether it's serious or not. There's also this sort of third road where some folks experience side effects after recovering completely. So whether you go to hospital or not, um, once you recover completely from COVID-19 symptoms, you then have some persistent side effects or lasting damage from the time you were infected. Um, that's how I understand it. But again, I'm not an expert. So I encourage you to do your research to Google and to try and find reputable sources. So... What's been surprising for me during this uptick is how many folks I know who are getting COVID. It started with me knowing people who knew people. Um, next, I knew one person who'd had it. Then I knew several. N then I knew someone who had two family members who died from it. Um, I haven't gotten it yet. Um, I talked with um, various people who knew people and ultimately found one of my friends, Intimacy, who I will be interviewing today, who has had COVID-19 and can talk about it. Uh, their whole family got infected and absolutely none of them died. However, um, intimacy is a long-haul survivor, so we're, we're going to be talking about that today. We chat about the importance of knowing the weakest link in your family unit. Of all the people who might contract it, who's actually at the greatest risk of contracting it and bringing it into your home? Who goes on unnecessary outings to indoor locations? Who doesn't wash their hands? Um, according to the Vancouver Sun, 18% of us in BC are what they call, quote, cynical spreaders, end quote, meaning th those people don't take any steps to limit COVID-19 whatsoever. And that is going to have its impact on BC. But if one has, if one of those cynical spreaders is living in your home, it is absolutely going to impact your risk. I will leave a YouTube video there for you to check out in the show notes about that. 
So remember, anyone can bring it home with them. That means once a person gets sick with it and smuggles it past your front door, and it's unlikely any amount of surface cleaning or hand washing you do in your home is going to help you out all that much unless you're doing so at a pretty ludicrous rate. And I'm not encouraging people to obsessively clean all their surfaces because ultimately a lot of the spreading is going to happen by people breathing and you inhaling their breath while they are, to quote Justin Trudeau, talking moistly. Um, a good example, though, of how that can be avoided is if folks are getting tested regularly, um, which isn't practical for everyone, or if folks are um, able to able to isolate the moment they know someone they've been in contact with has had a positive test until they're sure they're negative. So please be considerate and kind with each other. This stuff is really hard and people respond to anxiety in different ways. And some people respond to anxiety by not taking things or appearing to not take things seriously because their nervous system gets overwhelmed and they can't handle it. So be kind with your family folks. At the same time, go get tested if you have symptoms. So if you're experiencing fever, chills, cough, shortness of breath, fatigue, muscle or body aches, headache, loss of taste or smell, sore throat, congestion, runny nose, nausea, vomiting, diarrhea. If you start getting a few of those, like if you start thinking, oh, maybe this is this is COVID-19, please just go and get tested as soon as you can. If you're able to catch it before you've been coughing and you haven't spread it yet, there's a chance you might not have spread it to all the people in your household. You might be able to test and isolate. So best of luck to you. Now, the CDC says that typically those symptoms I just described, that's where I got the list from the CDC, typically those symptoms will show up once you've had the disease from 2 to 14 days, once you've had the infection, I should say. Um, many, many cities have drive-through testing now, like Vancouver has drive-through testing, um, Richmond has drive-through testing. I will link a site you can go to um, on the Vancouver Sun, like one of their pages that actually talks about where to get tested in Metro Vancouver. Okay, and now we are through all of the preamble. I'm so sorry that was so long. Now we can get to the session and we can talk with my guest, Intimacy, who no longer tests positive with COVID-19, but has been experiencing some pretty serious blood clots and other symptoms here on Intimate Interactions. Be gentle with yourself, folks, and good luck. Wash your hands. Welcome, everyone, to another session of Intimate Interactions. I'm here with my friend, Intimacy, who I met at Sex Geek Summer Camp. Intimacy is a non-monogamous coach, a sex coach and has been for a few years um, before COVID-19 kind of trashed the industry for all the folks. Do you want to intro yourself in terms of your identities, Intimacy? Yes. Hi. So um, I go by Intimacy Konomori, as in with love, and I identify as two-spirit, queer, um, genderqueer, and also pansexual, bisexual, gay, whatever you want to call me. Um, it just depends. Like if tomorrow I wake up and I'm like, today mm -hmm. I'm a boy, well then I'm gay. <laughs> but today I'm a girl. I have a dress on. I feel very <laughs> femme. So I'm a lesbian um, who dates men too. <laughs> I also identify as demisexual, asexual, and sometimes rarely megasexual. And I think that's like related to the moon cycle. I don't know. Cool. So it sounds like you have a lot of shifting perspectives i would say less like they're not so much shifting but it's more like floating and i just kind of fluidly float into whatever i feel um the universe and my body and brain are leading me to instead of fighting it and um 
struggling with societal ridiculous standards. I just kind of was raised to believe in me and to listen to whatever I deem as um, signs of, you know, what I should do and where I should go and what makes me feel good with my life decisions. That sounds really awesome. Like you really were given that sort of sense of, you know, believe in who you are and, and follow who you are and do what you need to do to be who you are very young. Yeah. I, I, my, my mom feels like she wasn't the best mom. And I'm like, no, actually you were a great mom and you were the kind of parent that everyone should have had in the past and everyone needs going forward. Like, I feel like my parents were parents before their time, really. Mm -hmm. So changing topics a little bit, we were talking before we started recording about COVID-19 and you mentioned that you actually had COVID-19. Do you want to sort of tell that story of how you got it and why you didn't think you had it and how folks got diagnosed, that kind of thing? Yeah. Um, So uh, the end of January leading into February, my brother was really sick and he went to the doctor and they just thought he had a really bad case of the flu. And I remember coming to visit him and I was like, oh, you're sicker than I thought you were. Let me leave because I don't want to catch that flu that you have. And so I avoided him. And then my father got sick and we thought he just had a really bad case of the flu because he has really, really weak lungs and asthma. And so I was like, "Mm, I must stay away from them because I don't want that. And then my father was better. And so me, my father, my mom went on a family trip. And in the middle of the trip, I got sick and that was March. And so I was like, oh, this is just like the weather change here in Texas when the weather goes from like cold to like spring warm. And um, I didn't get better. Like I, I stayed sick. And then when I came home, my live-in partner was sick. His mother was sick, whom I spend a lot of time with, like several days a week. And this child that I'm the nanny for, he was sick. And we all had the same symptoms. I mean, the same symptoms. <laughs> and so my partner went to the doctor. And at first they thought, oh, y'all just all have the flu. But then he didn't get better with like flu meds that they prescribed. So he went back to the doctor and they were like, we think maybe you have COVID. And then I was talking to my doctor about what his doctor said. And my doctor was like, it sounds like you do have COVID. Tell me all of the things. And so long story short, we all had COVID, but my mom and I had it for like 30 days where everyone else only had it for like two weeks before they were better. And so at the end of the 30 days, I went to the ER for blood clots. And the only other time I had blood clots was 17 years ago when I gave birth to my last child. And so I knew what it was because I had experienced it before. And I'm like, this is weird, random. I'm not giving birth. I'm not pregnant. I'm not miscarrying, which are all things that it's possible to have clotting. And so I was like, this is strange. I need to go to the ER because clots can turn into strokes or embolisms in your brain or your lungs. Like, I know you can die from blood clots. So I went to the ER, and not that I'm bashing, 
white male doctors who don't listen to their patients, but it's a thing <laughs> that white male doctors typically don't listen to their patients. And he sent me home mm -hmm. with discharge papers that said I had a leg cramp. No. Okay. So, so I was an athlete for 20 years and I played competitive sports year round for 20 years. Bitches ain't no goddamn leg cramp. So I called another medical professional and I was like, Hey, I know I'm having blood clots. I'm going to start taking one aspirin daily. And they were like, I think that's a good idea, but you should talk to your doctor. So I messaged my doctor. She agreed. It was not a leg cramp. She thought it was blood clots. She believes me. So she had me taking, um, 240 milligrams of aspirin for like three weeks. And then she was like taper down by 80 milligrams every week after wow. that. And so now she just has me on one aspirin a day. And when I stop taking the aspirin, it takes a few days, but after a few days, I can feel the clots running through my veins again. So I'm just going to take one aspirin a day, maybe, I don't know, for the rest of my life. I don't know. Nobody knows. No one has answers for this. Wow. That sounds incredibly stressful. Yeah. So with the clotting, now when I have my every 28 days menstrual cycle, there's more clotting, there's more cramping, and it's like telltale of the things that they teach you when you go to your gynecologist of what sorts of cycles you should go to the ER for because they're not normal. Oof. So I went back to the ER for that. <laughs> and they were like, you know, just watch it, be mindful, you know, stay in good contact with your doctor about it. And then last week I had an ovarian cyst burst. Oh. And there was more clotting and larger clots with my cycle than normal. It was really scary and extremely painful. And that's why I'm still on bed rest, which is boring as fuck. So thank you for this podcast opportunity. <laughs> you are so incredibly welcome intimacy. And thank you for coming on the podcast and being willing to so vulnerably share such a difficult story, history of how you got to today. So yeah, so with having COVID, I have now learned that based on autopsies of patients that died while they had COVID, they're finding that the reason that people can't get oxygen is because there's blood clots in their lungs. Mm. And so it's like the blood clots are like, that's why people are like drowning and they're, they you can't breathe. Like you literally can't breathe. So it's scary. It's not a joke. It's not a political hoax. Like, it's real. People do die. And I'm just thankful that I haven't. But now I'm like, okay, is the clotting going to ever stop? Or am I looking at a reality of soon to be 43 and need to worry about strokes and embolisms and vein damage and whatever else? like blood pressure problems. Like, I don't know everything that can happen with blood clots, but like those three things right there are pretty fucking serious. Yeah, they are. And honestly, intimacy, I'm so happy that you're 
you know, alive today and at least maybe not well, but significantly more well than fighting for your life. And I sincerely hope that you're able to make a full recovery and that the blood clots do go away. Thank you. Me too. Well, you're just, you're such a kind person and you're really compassionate and it's clear when you, you know, when you're talking about doing sex education and being a public speaker, like it comes from this very, like, I think personally as an outsider and empowered and wanting to empower others kind of place. So I want to see you be able to continue doing the work you do. Not to mention you're just a good person. I like you as a friend and want you to continue in the world as you. So, yeah, sounds really stressful. It sounds like there's a lot going on and that just sounds like such an incredible emotional burden to bear. How are you coping? How is that experience of asking yourself, is this just for now or is this like a lifetime condition? Like, how does that look for you in your head? With like the stress of that reality, I, um, in March for preventative measures, chose to start taking my anxiety meds daily where I hadn't had to have them daily. Mm. And so now where we are, um, six months later is I feel like the stress of COVID, the stress of the rest of the world slowly opening their eyes and realizing that racism is very real and very rampant and very alive where for me growing up, that was my reality from like age six on. So like, it's not new to me. It's not new to me, but it hurts that it's new to other people. So I just made an appointment with my counselor because I'm like, Hey, I need a little more help managing this than I can provide for myself right now. So Mm -hmm. um, I'm proud of myself for recognizing that and reaching out to my counselor for additional resources. So I'm proud of you as well. I get to see them next week. It's, it's a lot and it is hard as a person who grew up, um, you know, there were meetings, like literally I went to school with teenagers who went to white supremacy meetings. So like, it's not brand spanking new to me either. Um, and it is simultaneously, a relief and a tremendous disappointment. And it makes me angry that this stuff is new, like brand spanking new to some folks who are like, what? I didn't even know this was a thing. And it's like, cool. Talk to me in like a few months when you've done your work and done some reading and like, you've got some stuff down. Cause I don't want to be there for the one-on-one anymore. Mm-hmm. So yeah, I've, I, f- I feel you that it's that it's exhausting and the shit isn't new. Um, and it's just crazy, like in this pressure cooker of a time when everyone's freaking out um, and for good reason, like we don't, there's so many unknowns and it's just very human to be in that place of like anxiety and uncertainty. Like we got to be gentle with ourselves that we're I mean, folks are struggling with a lot. You're struggling with more than just about anyone I know, just because, you know, you actually have had COVID and, and your family's had COVID too. And like, I don't think folks, I don't think folks quite understand always like the importance of having, I think folks are getting an education and now like the importance of having a social network that, you know, goes to work for you and supports you. But what about when everybody has it? Like, 
how does that social network function? So actually, that's a great question. How does your social network function now that most of your immediate family has had COVID? So when my brother and my father were sick, my mother was their primary caretaker. Mm -hmm. And she's also a medical professional trained in infectious disease control. So (laughs) it seemed like for the most part, she kept herself from catching it until the month after my father had it. Mm. So we were like, "Mm, not so much. Um, But she doesn't know, like for her, she she got sick a few days after me. And when I'm sick, all I want to do is lay on my mom. And I was with my mom on a trip. So I was laying on her. So I'm like, I really, I probably am the one that got you sick. Mm -hmm. (laughs) Um, So until when my brother and my, dad were sick we didn't really need like no one outside of the household knew they were sick right Mm -hmm. but then when i got sick and and it was like falling dominoes mom was sick partner was sick partner's mom was sick so both of my moms were sick at the same time so i couldn't go lay on them for support they couldn't support me i couldn't support them like we were just all Mm. sick Basically, I relied on my local community. Like, I had friends who would, like, bring groceries and leave them on the porch for us. Also, I worked for Instacart, so I was just ordering groceries on Instacart for multiple households because, like, my mother-in-law needs food, and usually I'm the one that takes it to her. My parents need food, and they weren't, like, my dad was, like, panicking. My dad and my brother sort of don't handle when their um, family and loved ones are sick. They kind of, like, lose their shit. (laughs) So it was, it was, my community was great for me, but I was the community for my mom and my mother-in-law and my live-in partner Mm. at the time. And then the father of the baby that I keep, basically he trusts me. So I was like, let the baby live here until he's not sick anymore. Cause I don't want him to bring it home to you now that we know this is what this is. And his dad had been out of town the weekend that he actually got ill. So I was like, no, when you come back in town, we'll Skype. You can come over and see him from the front yard. But his dad works for the company that makes the um, mask that the surgeons and doctors Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. use. So I was like, we can't have you not going to work because your job really is essential. Like if we were to rank jobs that Mm -hmm. are essential, yours is one that is very essential because it's important for the rest of the medical Mm -hmm. world that you go to work, y'all make masks and ship mm-hmm. them out. So um, it worked out. The kid, he had like the least of it. Like he just had a bunch of mucus and coughing and he just wanted to lay on me, which is fine. Because if cuddles make you happy, let's cuddle. <laughs> you know, um, and he likes his medicine. He's not hes not a baby that fights you. When you tell him it's time to take medicine, he's like, okay. And you give it to him, he swallows it, keeps it moving. So great. It wasn't that bad, and my community was great. Um, I think what what I think one one of the most damaging parts of all of this COVID is not only people who have it actively have it, or people who have had it, or people who are um, what's the word like immune compromised, so they're rightfully so afraid of getting it and then people who care about those people is the social aspect of losing like physical touch like hugs Mm. 
and being able to go out to lunch with your friend and being able to go to the movie theater and laugh at the same part of the movie with a whole room full of strangers. Mm -hmm. Like, I think that this is not something that anyone ever imagined would be something that's a problem Mm -hmm. that I'm not sure everyone knows how to address or manage. Right. So, um, I've been very vocal in all my social media about people getting mental health services because you may be a person who never needed them before, but now not having, you know, social interactions with family, friends, even work associates, like people who are used to part of their social life being going into the office and joking with with coworkers Mm -hmm. and everyone's working from home now so you don't even necessarily have those little intimate moments at the water machine like it's it's a thing and people should be very aware of it and talk about it and own it and you know get some counseling or some help or something have you a buddy to vent you about Mm -hmm. it something yeah like the importance of that social network to sort of connect with folks and to share with folks and to like it's just so critical even if it's not physical touch and like physical intimacy which is also super important um just having someone that you can socially reach out to and feel connected to so you don't just feel like you're wilting away you know just like fading in isolation like it's humans need connection and when you can't get that physically you you really really extra need to get it in some way socially and i found like for people when i talk with them and i feel drained afterwards those aren't the people that you want to be talking to for your connection you need to find the people where you both feel understood at least seen heard ideally you both feel fed after a social conversation and those people can be hard to find but they are out there and in terms of physical touch Um, Some things that I've put into my personal self-care regimen when I'm just like desperate for touch are like a hot bath on my own, like a hot bath with, with, you know, all the luxury stuff. So like if you can get even plain mineral salts, like to dump some bath salts in and just like be in a hot bath for a while, feel it on your skin, try and practice mindfulness, try and be there and just experience that. Um, that's helped for me be a surrogate when I was feeling extra lonely and pets, my goodness, pets are so good for touch. If you can, if you're one of those very lucky people who can afford, you know, a cat, a dog, even, I mean, hell, even like a hamster, like (laughs) literally like wherever you get your warmth and your touch Mm -hmm. from, like find those, find those spaces where, where you can, cause they are out there if you look for them too. And again, no shade on that. Like, I'm not trying to like shame folks who haven't found it. I'm not trying to say like, oh, you should go and do these things. Cause I mean, fuck, I was depressed most of my life. The only reason I'm not depressed right now, I honestly believe, um, is because I'm currently medicated with vortioxetine and, you know, medications don't work for every person. And often, often to find a medication that does work for you, you have to go through lots and lots of medications. That's not always true. Um, in my case, I didn't have to go through actually Technically, actually, Vortioxetine was my first one, um, but I'm looking into changing my medication um, already um, just for other reasons, ADHD reasons, um, management of anxiety with depression. But um, yeah, Vortioxetine has been great for me. So point I was trying to make, which I distracted myself from and have now forgotten, had to do with um, just going and using your resources to the best of your ability. And if the best of your ability is just sitting in bed and staying alive another day, that's okay. Like, this shit is fucking hard, so that's okay. 
Yes, I co-sign everything you just said. Oh, thank you. Right. So talking about that, that one of the pieces that I really found interesting about what you were saying is this thing I've been experiencing personally, which is this idea of protocol exhaustion. So I have pretty simple COVID protocols. I wash my hands every time before I leave my house so that I don't spread whatever I might have um, any more than I have to. And I wear a mask and I wash my hands every time I come into my home. And then I have a second protocol. I'm one of those people lucky enough to have a car. Um, fuck, and I've been thinking about downgrading to a motorcycle because the insurance is pretty expensive in the region I'm in. And it's like, I'm just not using it that much, except mm-hmm. for groceries, where I'm enormously grateful that I have the ability to put everything in my car because I'm only supposed to go once every week to two weeks. So it's like, great. So I never use my car and it's a big expense except for the one time when I have to be able to transport lots of heavy shit at once. So um, with with winter coming on, you know, motorcycle seems less and less ideal, but I'm still considering it. Right. But I was talking about protocols. See, this is the thing with ADHD. It can be hard to be productive. I get so distracted. Um, but we were talking about protocols. So I do the hand washing in and out of my house. Um, I don't wear gloves because I find when I wear gloves, it reduces my likelihood to wash my hands and I'm more likely to touch more surfaces. Um, and I'm fortunate in that I have an education in hand washing um, during science labs and things like that. I was often working with microbes and uh, you have to wash your hands super well. So they really spend time training you on how to wash your hands. Um, having said that, people who know how to wash their hands, fuck it up regularly, like regularly. They've shown that hospital infections, uh, technically they're called nosocomial infections. They're the infections you get when you go to the hospital. Um, so they're like, I go to the hospital to get like minor surgery on my finger. I get infected because I touched a bed rail that wasn't properly sterilized. Those infections drastically go down mm-hmm. every time educators come into hospitals to remind doctors what they already know by making them take basically a brief primer on how to wash their hands. Every time they're reminded, here's how to wash your hands well, it's not they don't know it. They just go, oh, right. And they start doing it more and it drops the number of secondary or nosocomial infections in hospitals. So it's like, holy shit, like people literally die from those infections. And every time we send someone in to teach doctors how to wash their hands, something they already know how to do, they do it better. So it's like, you can't, So there's this idea that protocols are fatiguing. It takes emotional energy to think about washing my hands every time I leave or enter. And then when I get to my car, I also hand sanitize. So every time I go to touch anything, I've been through one hand sanitizing and one hand washing. Um, When I go out in the world in my car, every time I return to my car, I'm entering my car again, I hand sanitize. Um, So it's like... I'm really trying to put barriers between every location I visit and between my house and the outside world. And it's like, all that doesn't matter, you know, if, you know, to my roommate, for example, um, if my roommate's doing something similar and then I forget one time, you know, and I bring something home, um, all of a sudden it's not such a tight seal. So it's like the more people you live with, the harder it is. And then you start adding... um, this idea of protocol fatigue, how do you, how do you remind yourself? Like, do you have signs and do those signs just become part of the scenery? Like, how do you make sure that you actually do the things? So when you were talking about your, um, your mom, who is a healthcare provider, who knows this stuff intimately and was miraculously able to not get sick for that long around sick people, you start getting to the end of that journey and you're just like, fuck, this is exhausting. And lo and behold, of course, she ends up getting it. 
it's like it's it's hard like you, there's no perfect way to not get it you know right yeah i am um, so for me i also have um obsessive compulsive disorder and mm-hmm. <laughs> on top of that to uh, multiply the effect that i'm about to explain to you <clears throat> i am also on the spectrum so i have mm. texture touch issues to start with mm-hmm. and then i have germophobia issues on top of that and now we have covid so the reality is covid is airborne right Mm-hmm. So technically, walking into any building for me is like walking into a cloud of germs. Like mm-hmm. even if I don't touch anything, just walking into a building mm-hmm. because we don't know who's in that building and who's been in that building. I just assume it's germs in there. <laughs> mm-hmm. So my protocol is yours plus some other shit. Mm-hmm. So when I leave my house like i go outside i leave my apartment i go to my car i get in my car my car is my safe space Mm -hmm. i have trash bags in my car i have trash bags in my backpack i have trash bags in my purse because you need them to be able to safely throw away your gloves that you wear Mm -hmm. when you go to other strange places. Mm -hmm. And I don't take those gloves back to my vehicle at all. They go in the trash receptacle outside of whatever building I was in, in whatever Mm -hmm. parking lot my car is in. Before I go back to my car, those gloves that I just used inside of this other random ass building are going in the trash at that building. I'm not taking those germy gloves home. So Mm -hmm. (laughs) I, I I wash my hands a little more often than you do. (laughs) And I don't like touching doors. And I didn't like touching doors before COVID. So now the door touching has become even more of a challenge for me. Because it was always a challenge before. But it was like a fun challenge. And now it's like, Mm. this could save my life kind of challenge. So it's a little less fun and more necessary in my mind. So... I have extremely strong thighs and ankles from playing sports and from um, I was born with like an ankle dysfunction. So I had lots of ankle therapy over the last or the first 20 years of my life. So I kick doors open like soccer balls <laughs> and I have to consciously kick them gently because my legs and feet are so strong that if I'm not mindful to gently kick doors open, like I've broken a door before at a building that like the hinge came unbolted on the top of the door. Like, wow. oh shit, my bad. So doors that I can push open get kicked open with my foot So I love the doors specifically at some gas stations that have a double hinge so they can always be pushed out. They don't have to be pushed and pulled. Right. So I push them going in, I push them going out, and then I hop out real quick before the door comes back and touches me. Like, it's a thing. Yep. (laughs) If it's a door that I have to pull, I'm going to use my glove. I'm going to open the door. As soon as I step inside of that building, I'm going to find a trash can, throw that glove away, and put on a new glove. 
Mm-hmm. Because I'm not going to take the glove that touched the door and then go touching things inside of this building. Like, you know, I'm trying You're... to minimize how I'm spreading other germs that I may have been exposed to. Right. And you're you're also underscoring this really interesting point that you have such high standards for, you know, being a germaphobe, for preventing spread of germs, and you still got it through someone else in your household who doesn't have those standards, which is what I was originally talking about in this idea that the number of people you live with, it's not about the um the pr- the pr- the protocols that you have in place. It's about like, what are the protocols of all of your family members that live with you? And what's the chance that someone brings home COVID and spreads it to everybody? Well, I'm, I am living proof. Thank you. That it happens, you know, and, (laughs) and sadly, even though the percentages are low, Mm. without a doubt, you can bet money that some of the people who have died of COVID is because they live with someone who was being reckless and not taking it serious or themselves were the person who didn't take it serious Mm -hmm. and thought it was a political joke. Right. Like it's not a joke. And yeah, the death rates are not that high, but it's not about the death rates alone. It's about not continuing to be selfish, I guess. And, like, we have to come together and think in a way with our minds of, I need to prevent this for my entire community, not just people I live with, but everywhere that I have to go. If I have to leave my house, anyone else that's been there before me or after, I need to be mindful of not picking up those germs and then not spreading those germs. Yeah. It's a lot. (laughs) Yeah, but yeah, really I have is. gloves everywhere. I have gloves in my car. I have gloves at my parents' house. I have gloves at my mother-in-law's house. Like these are the places I frequent. <laughs> I have gloves everywhere. There's soap everywhere. My dad has been like magical, and like he has connections. And when there are things at the grocery store that people cannot get in stock. Mm-hmm. I can always call my dad and he has those things or he can make them magically be delivered to his home within a day or two. Mm. So we've been able to keep a nice um, set of protocols around having bleach to clean up with, alcohol to clean up with, all of that because yeah. it's important. But please don't drink it. It's not good for you to drink. <laughs> oh, my God. Cleaners. It's, um, no, you're 100% spot on that we do need to make those announcements. We do need to do those PSAs and, like, just stress for folks, like, oh, by the way, don't do this wacky thing that some have suggested um, because it could literally kill you. Mm-hmm. And it's it's so hard for me to wrap my brain around that because the idea that someone would literally drink bleach is, like, I, I just have no words. Like, I don't understand how we get to a society that's that that where anyone really that any any significant number of people could possibly be led to believe that. And like, even if you don't die. But you did drink it. Mm-hmm. You need to think about the fact that some people who have. Ingested things that are not meant to be humanly ingested that did not die but are 
essentially their brain and body is so disabled that now they're sort of a burden to their family because they want to do some social challenge on YouTube. Really? Mm -hmm. it's, it's not worth it. It's not worth it. Yeah. And like, no shame to folks who I like, I, I'm, I really struggle with the idea of the word burden. Cause like, obviously we love the people we love and we want to take care Me of them. Too. And some people have, you know, bigger needs than others. So I just want to be clear. Like, I don't think anyone's shaming folks who have, you know, who have sort of bigger needs at the same time, thinking about those risks before eating a whole bunch of Tide Pods or, you know, like, geez, like social media challenges. Wow. Can we just stick to the buckets of water or ice? Like, really? Those are fun. Those are safe. Let's let's just do that. 100%. And on that note, I think we should close this session and we'll do another one here in just a little bit. Does that sound good to you, Intimacy? Yeah. Thank you so much for joining me on this session and chatting about what, what for me, felt like a very vulnerable and intimate conversation. And I think um, the combination of the greatness of your mind of what you shared and then what I shared, I feel like it is going to be helpful, you know, like to put it out there in the universe. So I'm excited. That was good. Thank you. Thank you for that lovely compliment. It's always a pleasure to podcast with you, Intimacy. So how was it, Intimates? Did you love something you heard? Or maybe you're upset by something I said? Leave your comments on facebook.com slash interactions, or you can go to patreon.com slash victorsalmon, where you can find our Discord server. All of these communities are available on intimatepodcast.com, and I genuinely look forward to speaking with you soon. If you liked it, please consider helping us pay for show costs over at Patreon for as little as $1 per month. It's incredibly helpful. It's just a dollar a month. If you can afford it, we would hugely appreciate having your support. And hey, if that doesn't work for you, I completely understand. You can also help out by going to leave a review on iTunes or other favorite social media platform. Social proof like that helps so much with visibility and audience building. It helps other intimacy and relationship nerds find us. And if any of that just sounds like too much work, you can always do something really simple and it still goes a long way. Something like just tapping share and sending an episode that you liked, maybe a favorite, to a friend or partner, or maybe you can send them something you think they might really like. That's probably more considerate. <laughs> Thanks so much for your time and for your help in keeping us making more of Intimate Interactions. Oh yeah, I almost forgot. The intro music was Driving in the Rain by Timecrawler, and this outro music is Acoustic Blues by Jason Shaw.